1: Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the Book of Luke. So far in Luke chapter 21, Jesus has been sharing with his disciples that God's plan was not to bring justice against Rome but that he would save the world from their sins. Jesus shared that mankind would persecute his disciples and reject even his second coming. Communion was instituted at the Passover feast during the Last Supper Jesus would have before being betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders. Jesus told them that they were to have a new mission that would last the rest of their lives. In preparation of this mission, they were to pack a sack and be ready to travel sharing the gospel with everyone. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 22, verse 38.
2: Now the disciples, after Jesus tells them this, they said, well, Lord, behold, which means check this out. Lord, you didn't have to tell us this. We already came prepared. We've got two swords already. Jesus says it's enough. Why did Jesus say it's enough? Because if the disciples need to go to battle, I'm not an expert at math. However... If there's 11 of them and they only have two swords, that doesn't sound like a very efficient way to do battle. I would think that if the Lord intended them to fight the soldiers who were coming with Judas in just a few hours, that he would say, it's not enough. You need nine more, dummy heads. None of you, I, I've been with you three years and you don't even know math. That's certainly not what Jesus meant when he said it's enough. But that's what the disciples thought he meant. So these two swords, what were they enough for? Well, they were plenty for a scattered group looking to survive the night, to scare off thieves or to scare off, you know, those who would want to harm them as they're scattering, trying to find some place of safety in the middle of the night. They aren't even close to what they need to take on the temple guards who are coming with Judas. And it just shows to me, I think that the disciples missed the point again. See, Jesus told them that this new mission where they'd need a sword was for after his death on the cross, not to protect him from the cross. Which is why Jesus says something very different when Peter tries to use one of these swords in the garden. In Matthew 26, and it almost sounds contradictory, but we have to understand the context. In Matthew 26, verses 52 through 54, after Peter takes one of those swords and takes a swipe at the high priest's servant, poor guy, he's just there helping out, cuts off his ear, guarantee he wasn't aiming for an ear, all right? You know, it's not like Peter's going, anybody else want to lose an ear? He was aiming to kill the guy. He was aiming to do battle to keep them from arresting Jesus. But he's a fisherman. He's not a soldier. I know a lot of Christians are trying to be soldiers when they're supposed to be fishermen. So then said Jesus unto him, put up again your sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? It's almost like he says, Peter that's not what the sword was for. (laughs) That's not what it was for. Not to go on the offensive, not to keep me from going to the cross, not to preserve what we've had. The sword was for your safety is they take me and you leave. Don't you realize that if I want to stop this, I can do it like that? If you want to take up the sword and you want to fight against the enemy like that, that's how you're going to die, Peter, which leaves us with one last note on what the Bible has to say on the topic of self-defense. Jesus said the one who takes up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you know that God never promises a Christian that he'll be protected if he exercises self-defense? Nowhere in the Bible. Wait, wait, what about all those times that David talks about how the Lord will protect him and give him a strong right arm and help him strengthen his hand for war? Yeah, that's David, an Old Testament believer underneath the theocracy of Israel. God never promises that he will protect the Christian who decides to use self-defense. What's the point? The point is this. Be wary of your attitude towards self-defense because it should be exercised only when it's necessary to defend yourself or to defend the weak. Those are the only times that a Christian should be using it. It should never be used to scratch your itch for a fight. And too often, I see Christians today itching for a fight. They are itching for a fight. Willing to latch onto anything someone says or does and they're ready to go to war. And guys, that is not our mission. Our mission is not to point the weapon at the enemy and say, you come over here and I'll blast you. Our mission is to go onto their ground and love them and preach the gospel to them. That's our mission. Not say, well, if you come over here and you're nice and safe, then we'll tell you about Jesus at the point of a sword. Our mission is to go onto their territory where we're in danger and to love them and teach the, preach the gospel to them even at the cost of our own lives if necessary. That's our mission and it'll be our mission until Jesus comes back. I need to bring up one more thought because this aggression that I see amongst Christians in the United States in particular is not necessarily present in other places. And I see it bubbling over into the way we treat one another at times. And so not only are we ready to fight with the enemy, we're almost immediately ready to look at our brother and sister as the enemy. And so we're ready to go, man. Somebody says something I don't like, I don't agree with, we are ready to go. And wonderful technology, we have all sorts of places where we can go at it. If you are arguing with another brother or sister on social media, That is not what Christ would have us do Amen. that's not that 's not Jesus at all because here 's the thing when all those other people are watching, do you think they 're wanting what you have yeah. i 'm not wanting what you have, so i 'm certain they aren 't. Jesus said, This is how all men will know that you 're my disciples by the love that you have one for another. If you have a serious disagreement with somebody who's a brother or a sister, pull them aside privately, like the Bible says to. Don't take it public. Don't take it to text. Don't take it to group text. Don't take it to social media. See, but Pastor what they said was wrong. Okay, welcome to the life. People say things you're not going to like all the time. If it's that big a deal that you think something needs to be said... How about exercising some self-control, some spirit-led self-control instead of flesh-driven out of control and pull them aside privately at a later date? Most of the time, <laughs> when I'm upset about something and I'm ready just, you know, I immediately know I got to stop and I need to think about this for a while. If you know what happens nine out of 10 times, I don't do anything about it. Nine out of 10 times, as a day goes by, my temper cools, I'm not in the flesh anymore, and I start to just kind of chill, and I'm like, you know what, it's really not that big a deal. And here's the cool part. If it is that big a deal, I spent an entire day getting the big old log of flesh out of my own eye, so I can lovingly and biblically go and say, brother, sister, you got a speck over here, and I want to help you with it. I can do it in love, I can do it with sincerity i can do it under the power of the spirit and not under the flesh well they don't get it but that doesn't mean the night's not coming and so verse 39 it says in luke 22 and he came out they left the home where they celebrated the passover and as was his want as was his habit he went to the mount of olives and his disciples also followed him this is the place where jesus spent every night while he was there in jerusalem so they're just going there like normal it seems like a normal night, but this night is going to be very different. So when they get to that place, the place was Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane means an oil press. So this was an olive yard, and, and where they had the oil press was probably a, uh, a place inside where they would step on the oil, and uh, the olives and the oil would come out, and uh, they would harvest it. There was probably a covered area where they could, they could spend the night, so someone was probably letting them do that. And so when they get there, instead of going to sleep, it says here that he told them, pray that you enter not into temptation. Literally, it means you must keep on praying. Don't go to sleep tonight. Just keep on praying so that you don't enter into... The word temptation here means an attempt to cause someone to sin. So keep on praying all night. Don't go to sleep so that you don't enter into this attempt that's coming against you to get you to sin. So you don't enter into that. You don't sin. Okay? So in other words, he's not saying pray because the world's difficult and this is your normal prayer time. No. No. He says, this is a trap that's going to be laid by the enemy of your souls. You need to be prepped for it. You need to pray, pray, pray so you're not lured into it and caught by it. And you know, when our enemy is attacking us, our biggest tendency is to fall into those traps. When he begins to lie to us and and make us worry or or feel fearful or stir us up inside, make us feel anxious, we become angry at someone or something. Or we begin to despair and lose hope. Or we begin to become stubborn. Nobody's going to treat me like that. And we start to formulate our own solutions. Or even maybe we just fall into unbelief. Just go, God, I, I don't even know where you are. Our need in that moment when the enemy is tempting us with all that junk, when he's bringing all that stress and anxiety upon us, our need is to pray, 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 just like these guys. And not to pray that prayer will change our circumstance, but pray because it will enable us to face the attack and the Lord's strength instead of our weakness. J.C. Ryle said this, he said, we cannot avoid the assault of the enemy, but we are not obliged to give way to it. To be tempted is a painful thing and a heavy trial, but to enter into it is sin. And Jesus, he recognized his need to be strengthened for this coming assault. And so after he tells them, don't go to sleep, pray, keep on praying. Then he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast. And he kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him and being... In an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus got away from the other guys to be alone with his father. And when he got about a stone's throw away, he prayed, Father, if this is what you want, if this is your desire, remove this cup from me, the cross, the sin of the world being placed upon him. Remove this cup is, is a Greek idiom. When we say, oh, he's down on his luck or something like that. This is a Greek idiom for... Causing someone to not have to go through a difficult experience. So Jesus is praying, God, if, if this is what you want, then let's not do the cross. Take it away from me. This is a real request from Jesus. It's no less uh, real from any request you and I would make in prayer to God. And then there's a colon there, which means Jesus pauses. So he's waiting for the answer from his father. Now, when no yes, I'll take it away, answer comes. It's clear that doing so isn't what his father wanted. So Jesus prays another prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There are many who read this and struggle. They say, what kind of father wouldn't spare his son's genuine request for rescue? That's not a loving father. That's a horrible father. Rob Bell wrote an entire book about how the atonement isn't biblical, the idea that Christ died for our sins, that the wrath of God was poured out upon him on the cross for our sins, that the very concept of that is cosmic child abuse. If you would never do that to your son, how could the perfect loving father ever do that to his son? Wrote an entire book on it. Let me save you the reading time. (laughs) You don't need to find out what Rob Bell or anyone else thinks about this topic because all I need to do is talk to the son and see what he thought about it. Did he think his father was unfair? Did he think his father was unloving? Did he think his father was unreasonable? This is where the perfect humanity of Jesus shines its brightest. He doesn't rail against his father when the answer isn't yes. He doesn't whine or complain. He doesn't charge his father with any ill doing at all. He trusts that his father does love him and that his father's plan is best, even if it means a difficult time is coming for him. And so he says, nevertheless, the word nevertheless there, it's a marker of contrast in the Greek. It states the validity of something that's completely opposite of what's just been said or done. In other words, when he said, father, if if you want it, then please take this cup away. Nevertheless, that thing that I just prayed, if it's not what you want, I don't want it either. Nevertheless, not my will, not what I want, but what you want be done. Even though this is my request, Father, if the best answer is no, I'm good with that. I want that future, the one you've decided for me, I want that future to exist instead of the one I just asked you for now. What an amazing prayer! I mean, seriously, what an amazing... I want that future to exist instead of the one I just asked you for right now. Isn't that an amazing prayer? And please don't diminish it because he's God. (laughs) Of course he can pray that. He's God. I hear people say that. This prayer was done in the same way my prayers need to be done, as a man or a woman yielding to the loving Father. That's how Jesus prayed this prayer, as a man who didn't want to go to the cross who didn't want to go through all the things that came there. Oh, yes, he loved us. For the joy set before me endured the cross. But he asked the Lord to take it away. He asked his father to take it away. But he said, Father, if that future is not what you want, I want the future you want for me instead of the one I just asked you for. And when I yield to God like this, even if his answer is no, he will give me the strength to bear up under the difficulty I'm facing, just like he did with Jesus here. He says, and there appeared an angel on him from heaven, strengthening him. The word strengthening means to cause someone to regain strength after a temporary loss. Can you imagine how crushing it was for Jesus to say, if you want, Dad, take this away, and that the answer was no. I mean, that was probably hard emotionally. That was probably rough to go, I'm I'm going through with this. I'm going to have nails driven through my wrists and my feet. I'm going to wear a crown of thorns. I'm going to have my beard ripped out. I'm going to bear all the weight of all the sin of the world. But the angels came by and strengthened him emotionally, resupplied the blow that that was to know that this is coming, the anxiety that was there with that this is coming. The prospect of the suffering on the cross took a ton out of Jesus emotionally. But in addition to this, he was under attack from the enemy. In John 14, verse 30, Jesus, right at the end, before they leave to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells the lad's this. He says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world comes and he has nothing in me. He says, Listen, we're leaving this room of where we celebrated the Passover, and I know I'm going on the battlefield. I know I'm going to go toe to toe with the enemy. And he's going to hit me with everything he's got. But he's not going to find anything in me. I'm yielded to the Father. He's not going to find any room to purchase. No place, uh, a landing grounds, base of operations in me. He's not going to find it. But I know I'm going into a battle, the battle of my life. And in the same way the angel strengthened Jesus after his encounter with Satan in the desert, they come now. But the fight isn't over. Look at verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, So much so that his sweat was, as it were, great. The agony was so much so that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. What does it mean that he was in agony? The word means to grow into a state of intense emotional grief and anxiety. Can you imagine all the thoughts that Satan was assaulting Jesus with? I mean, the images of the pain he would experience You know the physical pain, the images of the suffering he would experience at the hands of the Jews and then the hands of the Romans, the scourging, all that stuff, the loss he would experience, the mocking he would experience, the abandonment by his closest friends. I'm sure that the enemy threw bitterness and anger at him, all sorts of things at him. You name it. But how did Jesus respond? He prayed more earnestly. The phrase prayed means, it's in the imperfect, it means he kept on praying and then more earnestly means without ceasing. What he told the disciples to do, don't go to sleep, pray, pray, pray. That's what Jesus did. He just kept on praying, kept on yielding to the Father. Now the agony and the attack from the enemy was so intense, the anxiety and the stress was so intense that it says he sweat, as it were, great clots of blood. This is a thing known in the medical field as hematidrosis. It's not an illness. It is a rare condition that a person can experience under intense stress. So it's not an illness or a sickness that it just happens. This can happen to any human being when they are under intense stress. It's just extremely rare And what happens is, is under the intense stress, tiny blood vessels rupture, and the blood vessels near the skin surface begin leaking through like sweat. So it comes through any opening available. So the nose, the eyes, the ears, and then your pores. So while Jesus is praying, he starts to get a bloody nose. So eyes start to leak, his ears start to leak. Maybe some of the skin starts to leak. It's not these gobs of blood. It looks like a watery type of blood. I looked at pictures because I wanted to know. And that's what's happening as he is just doing battle with the enemy through prayer. I've gone through some attacks from the enemy, but nothing like that. Nothing like that. And despite this intense attack from Satan, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus remained steadfast in yielding to his Father's will. That three times he prayed, "If you, if it's your will, let this cup pass." Nevertheless, not your will, but my will, but yours be done. He remained steadfast in trusting his Father. Hey, man, that's what it means to resist the devil, <laughs> right? That's what it means. That's what it means to stand on the promises of God's character instead of giving in to the enemy's lies. And I ask you this morning, do you resist the enemy's lies with God's truth? You have to know the word to be able to do that. Or do you give him a ready ear? Well, the disciples, unfortunately, did give him a ready ear. Of course, when he rose up from prayer and he was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. I think it's amazing that despite going through all this, the point that he's bleeding, Jesus is still concerned about his friends. Jesus is the perfect example of self-denial. He always put others before himself. And that's what love, that's what friendship looks like. But what does he find? They are sleeping for sorrow. The word sorrow, it's a less intense word than agony, but it means something very similar. They were experiencing sadness and distress. And while they didn't experience the same level of attack Jesus did, they were under attack. Satan was telling them, it's over, you're done, you're going to die tonight, Jesus isn't the Messiah, you've wasted the last three years of your life, same things he lies to you about. But instead of resisting those lies, instead of praying, they gave up the fight and they grew exhausted from the emotional distress, the sadness. And that's exactly what the enemy wanted, so that they wouldn't be spiritually prepared to act correctly when their world started to crumble in just a few hours. This is the enemy's method of attack. First Peter 5.8 says he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Do you know what a roaring lion is? The definition of a roaring lion is a toothless lion. Did you know that? Toothless lion. It's the aged or elderly lion who doesn't have the ability to hunt for himself anymore. But the way the hunting process works for lions is the roaring lion, it's his job to scare the prey. And so even though he's toothless and can't really do anything but maybe gum the animal, can't really hurt them. He's not, he doesn't have the ability to tear or shred with his teeth anymore. The animal's not in danger because he's old and experienced. He has the loudest roar. And so his job in the pack is to frighten the prey into a mistake, into the waiting arms of the younger lions who can do it harm. That's what the enemy of our souls is. He's a toothless lion with no power, but he tries to frighten us into a place where we're not safe. And so, this is why Jesus says to the disciples what he says next. Why are you sleeping? Why why are you sleeping? I wonder if asking myself this question in the middle of a trial might change how I face it. Why are you sulking, Will? Why are you refusing to talk to that person who hurt you, Will? Will? Why are you angry at God, Will? Why are you doing nothing fruitful right now, Will? I wonder how that would change my approach to the middle of a trial. Jesus is not being harsh with them. He's trying to help them because how they face what's coming depends on how they face what they're experiencing now. And so he says, rise and pray lest you enter into temptation." See, the enemy's attacks, his lies, they are the false trap before the real trap. They are the trap that really doesn't have any power over you, can't do anything to you, but its job is to frighten you into the real trap. So that when the real test comes and our lives are tossed up into the air, we're not ready to face it. One dictionary defines a fool as someone who follows his own inclinations rather than the dictates of wisdom. Their own inclinations were, it's over. It's over. Everything's changing now. What do we do? Just go to bed. We're going to die anyway. (laughs) The dictates of wisdom said, pray, 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 because something's coming that's worse than all the feelings you're thinking, but you can face it with the Lord's strength. And we have been warned of the enemy's tactics in Scripture, so let's not be fools, amen? Let's not settle for our own understanding, but in everything we do, let's take the Lord into account. I want to leave you with one verse before we close because I've gone well past my time. 1 Peter 5.10, the verse right after it tells us to resist the enemy you know, steadfastly in the faith. In 1 Peter 5.10, it says this, but the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory, not temporary glory, not glory now, but eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect establish you strengthen and settle you guys don't let false teachers tell you we have a guarantee of health wealth and success in all that we do because you're a king's kid listen while the enemy has always hated believers everything changed starting with that night this world is not our home and it does not love us the enemy out there does not love us So stop trying to build a kingdom here. Look to the coming city and the coming kingdom and take back ground from the enemy here until that kingdom comes. Go into enemy territory as a lamb, as a sheep among wolves and bring back those wolves with you
1: and turn them into sheep. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.
0: Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn.